Have you ever heard of positive Christianity? Hmm, sounds pretty well positive, doesn't it? But actually, under this anodyne name went a religion preaching that Christ was an Arian and that the Fuhrer was the herald of a new revelation. And plans were actually made to replace the Bible with Mein Kampf and church crosses with swastikas. Now, what's this you say? You've never heard of this? Well, never fear, listeners. We're here to fill in some of the gaps in your history lessons. Today we'll be talking about this, along with other peculiarities of religion under the Nazi regime, and how it all ultimately bears upon sex. This is the History of Sex Short Shorts. <laughs> History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I want to thank our Patreon patron, Anna Bratton, for making this episode possible. Before we get started, I want to ask you history buffs, you listen to hardcore history, right? What am I saying? Of course you do. And if you don't, what in the heck are you listening to us for when you could be listening to Dan? Well, did you know that he just released a book? Yup. And the audiobook version of it is read by Dan Carlin himself. And you can find that on Audible. If you sign up for your Audible free trial using our promo code, you will support both Dan and us at the same time. So just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash BT Newberg. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. So go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash BT Newberg and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. You can download a title free and start listening today. I'm listening to Dan Carlin's book right now, and you can too. We can have a little book club together. That's www.audibletrial.com forward slash B-T-N-E-W-B-E-R-G. Okay, now it's time for the show. The History of Sex, Short Shorts. Short, 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 In the early days, the church and the Nazis were at loggerheads, and in no sphere was that more apparent than in sexuality. See, Christianity was, of course, the dominant religion in Germany, including both Protestantism and Catholicism, depending on the region that you're talking about. And the Christian line on sex has always been, go forth and multiply, yes, but don't enjoy it. The Nazis were down with the first part, but not so much the second. Now, if you're looking for a religion that has the go forth and multiply part, but not the don't enjoy it part, well, you need not look much further than Judaism. I mean, the idea of sex as carnal sin did not originate in Judaism. It developed within Christianity, and it never quite made its way back to its parent religion. So, ironically, the Nazis might have done better to actually force everyone to put on their yarmulke and become Jews. Sadly, that was not to be, however. So they had to develop their own response to the traditional Christian attitude toward sex. The early Nazis looked at the Christian view of sex and laughed. 
they openly ridiculed Christian values as backward, soft-minded, and silly. Historian Julia Ruse explains, Himmler resented the church's moralistic stance on extramarital sex, which he believed was conducive to the spread of male homosexual relations. And Ruse goes on to quote Himmler's 1937 address, One cannot prevent the entire youth from drifting toward homosexuality if at the same time one blocks all the alternatives. This is madness. So in other words... Himmler, who, by the way, was the head of the SS and a rabid homophobe, in case you couldn't tell, is saying that young men and women must be allowed to get their freak on together without fear of righteous condemnation. Because, well, they're going to do it anyway, just with the same sex. That's a twisted line of logic. I'm not sure I follow it completely. But as we'll see when we get to our episode on queer identities, the Nazis believed that same-sex relations was a choice, not an orientation, and also believed that the libido, and the male libido in particular, was a kind of force of nature. It was like this tidal force that could not be stopped. And if you didn't provide an outlet, it would burst the dam. So you have to let the boys and the girls do their thing, and that way, at least, you'll get some babies out of the mix to help boost the Aryan population. So the sex-negative attitude of traditional Christianity, in short, simply would not do for Himmler and the Nazis. They needed a religion that was sex-positive. That's probably not why they named it Positive Christianity, although now that I think about it, that does make for some nice symmetry. Actually, Alfred Rosenberg, who crafted much of the theology for the Third Reich's custom religion, intended the name Positive Christianity to contrast with the so-called negative values of traditional Christianity, namely the passive aspects like the miraculous birth, suffering, sacrifice on the cross, and resurrection. All these things that, like, Jesus sort of has done to him by God, by grace, rather than doing himself. Instead, positive Christianity emphasized Jesus' active aspects like preaching, organizing, and fighting the institutionalized Judaism of his day. You can imagine why that would have appealed to Nazis. In particular, positive Christianity diverged from traditional forms of the religion on four points. Point number one, the Jewish parts of the Bible, i.e. the Old Testament, were rejected out of hand, just stricken from the Bible. Point number two, Jesus' Jewishness was erased, it was rejected, asserting instead that Jesus was an Aryan. Now, how is that possible? Well, some did these, like, theological backward somersaults saying that, well, since Jesus was the son of God, technically he's not the son of a Jew, so therefore not Jewish. Now, how then could he be an Aryan? I don't know. I guess never mind that part. Anyway, others claimed that the Galileans were actually genetic Aryans. I mean, maybe they made up some bogus etymological connections to Gauls or to Galatians, both of which were actually Indo-Europeans. I didn't find any actual Nazi references to that, but that's what I would have done if I was a nutjob who would believe anything that fit my racist ideology. And sad to say, I did find some nutjobs on the internet today that are making exactly that same claim. But anyway, the point is, according to positive Christianity, however they explain it, Jesus was white, and more specifically, he was an Aryan. Point number three, national unity was promoted. And point number four, the creation of an Aryan homeland was promoted. Those were the four main things 
where positive Christianity diverged from traditional forms of the religion. So in short, positive Christianity was pretty much a funhouse reflection of traditional Christian religion twisted to political ends. And it also rejected its parent religion, by the way. Rosenberg condemned both Catholicism and Protestantism, which he called negative Christianity. His religion, in contrast, was neither. It rejected the Nicene Creed, which was a key doctrinal whatchamacallit from ancient Roman days. And so Rosenberg's new religion was actually considered heretical by all other sects of Christianity. Big surprise. Now, Hitler himself used the term positive Christianity as early as 1920 in the Nazi party platform, which states, The party represents the standpoint of positive Christianity. Now, Hitler was not so radical in his statements as Rosenberg, at least not publicly. Far from condemning all other forms of Christianity, he actually wrote in Mein Kampf that both Catholicism and Protestantism were valid bases for the German people, and I don't know why he doesn't mention Eastern Orthodoxy in that, but I suppose it's no surprise given that he was planning to steamroll over the Slavic peoples and pretty much everyone else anyway. So why did Hitler endorse traditional Christianity while also endorsing this new religion radically hostile to it? Because politics, that's why. See, Hitler knew opportunity when he smelled it. Sometimes it was expedient to promote the religion of the voting constituency, while other times, it was expedient to promote a religion more aligned with Nazi ideology, i.e. positive Christianity. My personal suspicion is that he had very little faith in either. He was just using them opportunistically. As for other Nazis, well, they were all over the place. Most of them actually remained traditional Christians throughout the duration of the Third Reich, while others splintered off in other interesting directions. So let's talk a little bit about that now. Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS that we heard from earlier, actually promoted something else. He promoted something called Gottglaubig, or God-believing, if you translate it literally. And this was a sort of vague belief in a supreme being, but without any particular doctrine or detail attached to it. And what this did was it freed those who identified with this label from the strictures of traditional religion. They didn't have to go by any of the doctrine. Again, this frees them from the notion of sex as carnal sin. But at the same time, it did so without tying them to atheism, which was solidly associated with the arch enemies of the Nazis, the communists. Atheism equaled communism, and they didn't want to appear like that. So they had to believe in something. So they said, okay, well, just a vague supreme deity then. This was a kind of deism that let some Nazis distinguish themselves from communists while also distinguishing themselves from organized religion and while letting them get their freak on with a clear conscience. Gottgleubigkeit, that's what you would call the religion as a whole, gained a modest following, mainly among Himmler's SS followers, due perhaps in part to perceived need to kind of, you know, sign up for it to please superiors and climb the ranks. A 1939 census found that 3.5% of the German population, which is nothing to sneeze at, but not huge either, identified as Gottgleubiga, or believers in this, but it never became a major force, nor did it outlive the regime. Now, still others within the Nazi party sought a still more radical break with traditional religion, going all the way back 
to pre-Christian practices. They longed for an alternative model for religious and mystical symbolism and looked back to the heathen days of noble Teutonic warriors menacing Rome and embracing their wild urges with unashamed vigor. Occult pagan imagery of Woden, Thor, and the Valkyries filled the Nazi imagination. For example, you know, SS uniforms with those striking lightning bolt S's on the lapels? Well, that SS insignia, those S's are actually, in fact, Viking runes, or at least twisted attempts at runes. They pretty much mangled the meaning of them in Nazi hands. Anyway, this occult symbolism, fudged or not, evoked the mythos of a virile people from the misty past, free of Christian sexual baggage. Now, this ancient ideal was then married with modern ideas to create an alternative sexual ethos. See, popular in the early 20th century were pseudoscientific versions of a theory of natural selection deformed by popular misunderstanding into an ethic that the strongest in society should dominate the weak. And all the rage was something called eugenics, which suggested that we take an active role in natural selection. The fittest should be helped to proliferate, while the unfit should be helped to disappear from the gene pool. And while this was trending all over Europe and America, the Nazis took this and ran with it like no other. And we are all well aware of how they helped the so-called unfit to disappear via mass genocide of not only Jews, but also Poles, Roma, and Sinti, which are what we used to call gypsies, the mentally disabled, and to a lesser degree, homosexuals. What we are generally less aware of is the flip side of their eugenics program, the positive selection part, which encouraged the breeding of the so-called fittest. And thinking along these lines, once again, they looked back to ancient sources, this time the ancient Roman writer Tacitus. Their hearts were fired by Tacitus's words, quote, for myself, I accept the view that the peoples of Germany have never contaminated themselves by intermarriage with foreigners, but remain of pure blood, distinct and unlike any other nation. One result of this is that their physical characteristics, insofar as one can generalize about such a large population, are always the same. Fierce-looking, blue eyes, reddish hair, and big frames. Now... Tacitus only wrote positively of the Germanic tribes in order to critique his own society, the Romans of his day, but this nuance was lost on Nazi readers. See, they heard the exaltation of their own people and imagined themselves as the fittest of all. Their next generation would be like a second coming of Tacitus's wild tribes, pure, Nordic, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, in short specimens of uncanny fitness destined with the help of eugenic planning for greatness, in short, an Aryan master race. The Nazis exploited the popular enthusiasm for eugenics in order to justify their racist ideology as survival of the fittest, and all of this was kitted out with faux-ancient occult symbolism from the pre-Christian past. Those runes, the kernels of truth behind those rumors you heard about Nazis searching for the Spear of Destiny and things like that. Toss in a few Wagner operas that also kind of nod back to that ancient past. And there you go. You've got a whole aesthetic cum religion custom for the Nazi ideology. Now, this occult strain of Nazi religion never gained a mass following or outlived the regime either. 
Though modern pagans and heathens have been haunted by this Nazi appropriation of their religious symbolism ever since. In the end, Nazi leaders, in their attempt to speed breed the master race, rejected traditional Christianity with its sex-negative attitude in favor of a variety of homegrown sects better aligned with its goals. And it is not without irony that the Jews suffered the brunt of the castigations of these radicals, as they probably least displayed the sex-negative attitudes against which these radicals railed with such fury. But at the same time, the Nazis could not simply execute Christians without simultaneously executing most of their precious Aryan race, so they pulled their favorite trick, blaming the Jews. According to Anna Clark, members of the SS blamed quote-unquote Oriental Christians for suppressing quote-unquote healthy sexual attitudes. In this case, Oriental was probably a euphemism for Jewish. So in other words, the Nazis hated Christian attitudes towards sex as sinful, but instead of directly attacking Christians, they moved on them indirectly by portraying them as victims of Jewish influence, even though Judaism is considerably less sexually repressive than Christianity. Now, none of the various experiments in Nazi religion ever came to much fruition. The vast majority of Germans remained traditional Christians, either just trying to keep their head down under a terrifying and frankly confusing regime, or embracing the Nazi creed but without worrying too much about reconciling it with their own. Meanwhile, Hitler watched all this from his perch on high, feigning traditional belief at some times and radical belief at others as the opportunity presented itself. Nor did these religious experiments outlive Hitler's regime. All of them have fallen into obscurity, although, sad to say, there are fringe kooks out there that still spout this stuff. Positive Christianity, in fact, is carried on in part by a small handful of folks going under the label of Christian identity. <sighs> People will believe anything. Anyway, that is the scoop on religion in Nazi Germany and how it relates to sex. That's it for today, folks. I hope you learned something. I certainly did. Folks, if you like what we're doing here, remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and you can support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash btnewberg. You can get ad-free episodes and even a free hand-drawn portrait of you in the time period and culture of your choosing. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. That's www.patreon.com forward slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. I'm that guy, B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex Short Shorts. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.